Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take two data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, talking to you from Berlin, Germany. I'm here, as always, with Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We were away for a couple weeks, but I'm, I'm happy we're back. One of the topics that we've addressed last year is still with us. That's inflation. We'll be getting to that in just a second. But just so you all know, the second half of the show, as usual, we're addressing something not in the news. That will be the two rock bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the economics related to each of those bands. But like I said, we will be doing our news data point as usual. And what it is for this week is 1971. That is the last time that the United States had universal, across-the-board, price controls. I am today ordering a freeze on all prices and wages throughout the United States for a period of 90 days. In addition, I call upon corporations... The president at the time was Richard Nixon, and economic problems he was dealing with then are among the, the ones we're dealing with today, namely inflation. And on August 15th of that year, 1971, Nixon had a big nationally televised address. He announced that he was ordering a freeze on all prices and wages throughout the United States. I am relying on the voluntary cooperation of all Americans, each one of you, workers, employers, consumers, to make this freeze work. And then the idea was after a 90-day freeze, any increases would have to be approved by a new pay board, a price commission, and then eventually uh, the idea was that the price controls could be lifted. So that was 50 years ago. Why is this a news data point today? Uh, you know, as I said, we're dealing with inflation today, but it's not, it's not only that. It's also that this policy of price controls, again, of the United States basically responding to rising prices by using the law to directly influence price levels, that idea is suddenly back, it seems, after decades of basically disappearing from most policy discussions. It started with a piece in the op-ed section of the Guardian newspaper by the economist Isabella Weber that was headlined, Could Strategic Price Controls Help Fight Inflation? And that question she seemed to answer with yes, and that's inspired all sorts of disagreements from other economists, counter-responses in turn. And so here we are. This tool hasn't really been used for decades. Most economists seem to have really clear opinions on what they think about it. And Adam, I thought we could have a discussion here to figure out what the rest of us should think. So we have these growing suggestions that price controls could be useful in combating inflation. Uh, but on the most basic level, I was wondering how do price controls work? I mean, you have a government office, I guess, that then would decide what the prices of specific commodities should be, and then what? 
I mean, do they call all the producers and let them know? Can you walk me through the mechanics here? Yeah, the mechanics are a little hard to envision, I think. I mean, you would need a pretty comprehensive collection of price data. You'd end up having to work with industries, with suppliers, with retailers, the entire chain. I mean, the Office of Price Administration in World War II, which was the most comprehensive effort America has ever made to manage its price system, I mean, it had 160,000 full-time federal employees on its on its registers. It, you know that that one, and that was just the permanent staff. I mean, to 160,000 people working on price controls at the time. Okay, 160,000. Yeah, huge. And then you'd have to have 5,500 price control committees in local communities up and down the country, uh, pursuing you know potentially hundreds of thousands of cases of violation, which is what they were dealing with in World War II. Now, of course, the advocates of this would say the world's changed. We live in a world of big data. You could do this by way of the large retailers and so on. But still, the the, the data and administrative issues here are formidable. They can't be underestimated. One of the effects of a system like this, for better or worse, is that it turns the entirety of economic life effectively into a kind of a zone for political and, and legal battles, right? And that can be very productive. And I think that's the spirit in which this suggestion is being made, that you know we need to talk about the obscene prices being charged for, I don't know, COVID tests and things like that, right? It mobilizes anti-corporate rage, um, but it also creates conditions for various types of conspiracy theory, ethnic strife, accusations against... Minority groups are Korean grocers gouging their African-American customers in L.A. or, or you know, are Arabs gouging us all for, for oil. I mean, not for nothing. Usury has been a classic charge of anti-Semites. So it's all down to the politics. And I think that's part of the intention, right, that what forces are you mobilizing to define, regulate and enforce your price controls will determine how this works and what kind of a political valence it has, what the political consequences are. Yeah, I mean, I think the confusing thing is that, again, we've not had price controls of this sort for a while. And I just think we're conditioned to think of price as something natural, like a kind of natural expression of the relationship between supply and demand. Um, I mean, does this idea of price controls kind of just lift the veil on this construct? I mean, Theoretically, are prices just something that have always been able to be decided by fiat as long as you're willing to kind of do some tinkering elsewhere in the economy? Yeah, I think that's one of the productive effects of this conversation, because economics conditions us to think about prices in two ways, both of which are powerful, but both of which are also very simplified. Like one is, as you say, the kind of microeconomic conception of prices as emerging from something like a market, right, which I think we kind of imagine as being like an auction. And on the other hand, there's the macroeconomic conception of prices, which is, you know, something like the quantity theory, MV equals PT, too much money chasing, too many, you know, too few goods causes prices to go up. And both of those simplifications, the micro conception of auction markets for everything and the macro conception of money and goods facing each other, both are very, very powerful, very helpful but also massively simplifying. And, and that's part of you know, how they work. And of course, it's true that general demand pressures do play a role. And that's part of what's going on here and what's motivating this conversation. Do we have too much juice in the economy right now? And of course, it's also true that some commodities are set in auction markets um, where you can really think of prices emerging, as you were saying, as a sort of natural effect of demand and supply interacting. 
But in big parts of the economy, like that's not how it works, right? Um, so big companies set the price and hold those for long periods, and then they track, if they're well run, whether consumers come or not. So the crucial point here is that, exactly as you say, this is not a natural process. All prices are decided by someone. The question is who sets them and in what context and what motivates that choice. So involving public bodies, governments doesn't really fundamentally change the game, but it expands the game, right? It expands the game to a new range of actors. And that's what the politics of this are about. Okay, so this gets me wondering, to what extent do we have price controls already in place? I mean, I've been saying we don't, uh, that we haven't had this kind of universal price control regime for decades, but you're sort of naming examples where, you know, the government may be playing some role. I mean, just to take oil markets as an example, I mean, isn't the price of oil something that's determined by government negotiations, like we see with OPEC, for example? Or, or, I mean, couldn't other types of economic regulations that we're used to from the government, couldn't they be thought of as setting floors for prices? I mean, say the minimum wage, is that a kind of price control? In the US right now, yeah, I think there are four main areas where you could really see substantial regulative impact. So one is the minimum wage model, which you've described absolutely, and that's state by state, and that sets a a floor. Then there's rent control, which is basically confined to five states in the United States, California, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Oregon, all have rent controls. And in particular cities like New York, they're very extensive. So about 45% of New York City's rental units are under rent control. So that's another model. Then health, which is a huge part of the US economy, 16, 17%. Pharmaceuticals and services there, there are prices set essentially by big buyers. So Medicare and Medicaid, the two publicly funded mechanisms for providing healthcare are the big price setters. That doesn't mean that there aren't other prices that you can pay, but they exert a really major influence. And then finally, there's the whole issue of utility prices in the US, which are also very heavily regulated. So electricity preeminently um, is a matter of both federal and state level regulation. And of course, when it comes to the climate question, we need to sort of rethink all of that because most of that price regulation for energy is about limiting how high it can go. When we think about decarbonisation and the energy transition to address the climate crisis, we need to flip that on its head. So very recently, for instance, the German government, the new German government has effectively announced that it will make 60 euros per tonne of CO2 emissions, so 65 roughly, 65, $70 dollars, a minimum price, and that will affect the cost of inputs across the entire economy. All told, we're talking about, you know, if you add all of those sectors up, we're talking about, what, 15% maybe of the economy, something like that, 15, I'd say that's probably a high side estimate. That's one sixth of the economy, which is subject to one or other form of direct government regulation in terms of price setting. Okay, this clarifies, I think, a bit then why this debate has stirred up all this kind of intellectual emotion among economists. Um, It does seem like there's more at stake here than just a policy debate. I mean, this isn't just a discussion about how to respond to inflation, right? I mean, this is this a proxy debate, Adam, over something else? I mean, is this really a debate about some deeper question about what the economy even is, how it works more generally? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. I think that's that's spot on. Um, the emotion it evokes has been really remarkable. And it hasn't altogether been pleasant, it has to be said, that the response to Isabella Weber's essay in The Guardian was, to my mind, entirely 
inappropriate in its savagery and disrespect, really. But I think it wasn't surprising because this is a conversation about fundamentals. Fundamentally, what we're talking about here is neoliberalism, right? Um, neoliberalism and its anti-government bias. Um, and what the advocates of price control are doing uh, is saying we need to reconsider that. And we need to reconsider growing state competence back. And it's definitely a generational thing, right? The last time, as our data point suggests for this week, right? The last time comprehensive price controls were tried in the US was in the 1970s. And the most contentious and I think indisputably dysfunctional bit of that control mechanism was energy price caps, which persisted in the US through the early 80s and, and helped to encourage excessive oil consumption in the US. Um, and that means that this whole conversation has a bit of a generational dynamic to it. I mean, Paul Krugman in his column in the New York Times on inflation recently was reflecting on his experience as a graduate student, not knowing whether his stipend would stretch to, you know, the high quality of beef for burgers that he was used to. So there's a lot of invested in this, right? It's not just a matter of right and wrong or good versus bad policy. It's a sense of whether or not the kids really understand what we folks learned in the 70s. I have to say, you know, there are lots of different things to get excited about here. And one of the things that I've found disconcerting about this debate is that both the advocates of price controls and their opponents, neither of them seem terribly interested in actually debating what's going on in the US right now in 2022, right? They, their passion seems to be directed towards the issue as a matter of principle. Whereas I have to say, I'm so concerned about events coming up this year in the US that that I'm very impatient with either, you know, with both sides. This is not something that we need to just be having a conversation about at this moment. We actually need to concretely decide what the best tactics are going to be for controlling this increase in prices and whether or not, indeed, it really merits drastic action at all. And as you know, I'm, you know, paid up, fully committed, flag-flying member of Team Transitory hmm. because I think probably... Me, me, unpack that. What do, you, what do you mean by Team Transitory for folks who haven't learned... Well, I think probably the, the price spike is going to pass. I'm not even sure whether it's a terribly good idea to call it inflation because I don't think it's broad-based enough and general enough. And again, about this, there's been a big argument in the last couple of weeks too. But if it's not, if it's largely sectoral, then we're not doing ourselves any service by talking about this as general inflation and then deciding, okay, we ought to have a grand you know, knockdown, drag-out argument about the basic mechanisms of inflation control when what we're really dealing with is a sudden spike in energy prices and some very weird things happening in the car markets for cars and used cars, and then some other interesting movements in rental prices and, and home prices. And that's really all there is to it. That, that explains the vast majority of what's going on. And hopefully by the middle of next year, ahead of the midterms, the whole spook will have passed and we can relax again, rather than, as it were, jumping onto this bandwagon and saying, oh my God, time for a huge grandstand debate about inflation where we dig up all of these key issues. I, I'm too concerned about the delicately balanced political and indeed economic situation right now to feel that the timing is good for that. So fair to say, Adam, you don't think price controls are, are necessary. I know you were being very judicious in explaining the entire context, but but I just do want to, I would be remiss not to sort of ask directly. No, right now, I just don't see, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely averse to the principled opposition, oh no, don't touch that, that's anathema. And we should definitely talk about what we could do with the price controls, which already exist, that would help. And in Europe, for instance, 
with a huge energy price. Many countries in Europe have used existing controls to dampen their effect on consumers, all the more sensibly because this is likely to be transient. But the idea of a sort of shift to comprehensive price controls at this moment, I don't understand what the appeal would be of that kind of proposal. Got it. Thanks, Adam, for indulging my direct question. I have one more question here while we're talking about inflation. It comes from a listener. We've been asking for listener questions, and this one just happened to fit. So I thought I would ask. It comes from Brent Hayes' hand, and he says he's been listening to our uh, podcast episodes about inflation, and he thinks uh, there's an important question that we've not asked and that's namely just how much of our current inflation experience is being driven by the narrative nationally about inflation. He says, in other words, how much inflation is due not to actual cost increases, but instead due to companies raising prices to, quote, get ahead of inspected inflation. So what do you think? I mean, this is a fundamental question. It's a great question. Thanks so much for, for putting it to us. Um and it's absolutely the heart of the entire debate, actually. And, and, but it goes on by the moniker of inflation expectations. So the big worry in a sort of 1970s style situation is that inflation races upwards as workers and employers and everyone in the economy gets used to inflation, anticipates it. And then exactly as our listener suggests, begins preemptively adjusting their wages and prices. And so the narrative itself, the story of inflation drives the inflationary dynamic. And that's not, as it were, that makes perfect sense from an economic point of view. You should try and get ahead of the game, right? So this isn't some sort of fantastical process. It's it's very, very real. And you, you see it in hyperinflationary situations around the world always. They become self-driving. And the way to counter that, which is what the Fed has now done, it's shifted its position quite dramatically, is it's abandoned team transitory, those of us who insist on saying, the prices are likely to decelerate next year. I don't think they'll fall, but I think they'll stop increasing as rapidly as they are. The Fed, which once endorsed that kind of language, has pulled back very publicly from speaking in those terms and has now announced that it is beginning to reduce its level of stimulus for the economy. And part of the reason they're doing that is to precisely break this inflation narrative. That's the key to it. I think the Fed still in its heart of hearts, and really it's quite difficult to look at the numbers and disagree with this, believes that inflation will, of natural causes, calm down next year anyway. But it's very important for the Fed to be seen to be acting sufficiently far ahead. And many people would accuse it of, in fact, lagging very far behind. But for the Fed to catch up with the narrative and appear to be a powerful counterinflationary force. So the buzzword to look for in the conversation, which speaks directly to this point, is inflation expectations. It sounds like beyond economics, you could use a degree in literary theory, all this discussion of narratives and being <laughs> aware of these narratives. It is a rich topic um yeah thanks for the question and of course we're always open to other questions so send them in and uh, we'll try to fit them in but for now we will actually move to the 1960s and discuss the beatles and rolling stones in just one second hi this show is sponsored by better help so there's something i've been meaning to get off my chest and it has to do with uh little league my son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, 
not literally, but you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me and. I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. So the next data point is $1.2 billion. That is the net worth of Sir Paul McCartney of the Beatles. I got thinking about Paul recently as I was watching the new Beatles documentary, as many of you may have been doing as well. We're talking about 14 songs we hope to get. I've got a feeling. How many have we already recorded good enough? None. Oh, yeah. None of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. I've got a feeling. I would dig to play on stage, you know. Nobody else wants to do a show. I think we've got a bit shy. That is called Get Back. It's eight hours of the Beatles as they recorded their Let It Be album. It's a remarkable movie. It got me thinking about their songs, got me thinking about listening to their songs growing up. And of course, it got me thinking about their uh, big rival, the Rolling Stones. Somehow in my mind, these two bands are linked. And it got me thinking that uh, we could be discussing both of them in a segment for the podcast, because not only are they musicians, but they're both vastly successful economic entities all their own. So I figured maybe, again, we've done this before, but maybe some disclosures. I guess I would call myself more of a Beatles fan. I grew up just sort of listening to them as they, their sort of revival. One of their many revivals took off in the 90s. But Adam, I guess you're more of a Stones guy. Is that right? Yeah, truly, to the death. <laughs> all right. A soul heard today. So we know where we, you know, cards on the table here, but we'll just dive in, I guess, then with the Stones. The Stones just finished a tour in the U.S. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, well, you might just find, and you might just need. 
and I'm guessing it, it'll be one of the most successful music tours of the year because that's basically been true of every Rolling Stones tour going back decades. Is it possible to say how the composition of their audience has changed over time? I mean, obviously, again, they're they're successful, but is their is their audience shifted over time? Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're much older. Um, after all, it used to be a band that you know attracted huge crowds of screaming teenagers in the '60s. And the Stones' core audience today is much older. And basically, I think the market researchers say it's 45 to 72-year-olds, broadly speaking, the demographic of the band itself in the kind of middle income wealth range. Uh, what's really striking about that is that that's exactly the target audience for certain sorts of financial advisors as well. So the <laughs> only sponsor, the sole sponsor of their 2019 tour, which was huge, was the Alliance for Lifetime Incomes, which is a trade association that promotes the sale of annuities, in other words, retirement bonds, provoking one journalist to remark that uh, we're trying to cope with the fact that a group we understood to be about youth and rebellion and sex, drugs and rock and roll and all that has essentially turned into a bunch of people endorsing retirement plans. So that's the, the state of it at this point. But they still they still rock out. But this is interesting, though, because you're saying that the demographic indicators of it, the audience have changed. But in a certain sense, the people in the audience are the same. I mean, it's the same people. They're just getting older with the band. Right? I mean, yeah. in a way, it's not, it's not, it's, it's one way you could say it's the audience hasn't changed. They've just changed with the band, right? I mean, is that, is that right? Yeah. Well, okay. it's a younger demographic because, I mean, they've, they've churned at this point there. You know, we're going over the edge here. This is blurring into ones and twos on the question of end of life. But, <laughs> but, um, okay. but absolutely, yes, there's a, there's a degree of just aging with the music. Yeah, that is a kind of uh, poignancy there. But yeah, let's dive into the life cycle aspect of this. I mean, we have announced that we're going to be doing life cycle economics in the new year. And that got me thinking about, yeah, the Stones' own status. I mean, I guess uh, with apologies, wh whether that needs to be stated or not, they're obviously senior citizens. They're even sort of elder senior citizens at this point. What percentage of people in the U.S. or Britain are even working at the age that the Stones are touring at right now. I mean, should we expect the insurance premiums that the band needs to pay uh, on this kind of tour that they've gone on? Should, has that gone up? I mean, even just the physical labor that, that Mick Jagger is sort of strenuous dancing, uh, is, that, is that just frankly a danger to his health at this age? I mean, how, how to make sense of, of this in economic terms? Yeah, I mean, at one level, they reflect a broader trend. The share of Americans working in their 70s has risen from less than 10% to nearly 15% in the last 20 years. And that's partly an effect of opportunity. People live longer and they're healthier, but it's also necessity. Um, so you see this interesting gradient where the opportunity element, I think, is reflected in the fact that people with uh, bachelor's degrees in the U.S., in their 70s, 20% of them are still working, whereas those with only high school qualifications only 10% of those are working. So it's a reflection, I think, of the kind of jobs that, that they will be asked to do. Overall, that population of people is much larger as well. That's part of, I think, of the Rolling Stone success, right, is they're speaking not just to an aging population, but to a huge demographics. The number of Americans over the age of 65 has increased since the 1960s when they got started from 16 million to 54 million. So they're a much bigger demographic. 
But how many of them could really do Mick Jagger's job, I think, is a rather different question. I mean, I mean, 40% of Americans over the age of 65 report difficulties with walking or climbing stairs. And, and Mick Jagger, as he politely said, is, a, is an elderly senior citizen. He's 78. And um, only 6.8% of Americans over the age of 75 are still working. So we're talking about an exclusive demographic here. And, and how does he do it? Well, no more drugs and hard living. Um, he may still look the part of the rock star Rue, but he lives like an athlete, right? He eats mainly pasta, chicken, whole grain bread, potatoes, rice, beans. It's disgusting. And um, he works out three hours a day, apparently. Three hours a day, six days a week, doing loads of ballet and weight training in Pilates and God knows what. So um, so no, no more loose rock and roll lifestyle and a highly disciplined performance training program. It is remarkable. I mean, I do think of sort of other people as age who are working. <laughs> yeah, and they do have insurance on everything. I mean, they've had four, a whole series of major lawsuits around the insurance on their concerts. The most notorious one, in fact, concerns Mick Jagger's girlfriend. So they take out insurance against, in fact, the pros prospect of illness and, and ill health and, and even death in their own families. So, because, you know, they're, they're, some of these tours, that the highest grossing one I think they did was $560 million dollars. So that's a huge business enterprise that, of course, you have to ensure. We'll shift to the Beatles here. Uh, clearly, the Beatles uh, do not enjoy the longevity that the Stones have had all this time. From my reading, it kind of blew my mind that for most of the time since writing their catalog of songs, that Lennon and McCartney, they didn't own their songs. I mean, from 1985 until his death, it was Michael Jackson that actually owned the, the Lennon-McCartney catalog. And so, I don't know, they were obviously very creative and entrepreneurial. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't have started this band and, and, and been writing the songs that you're pointing out. I don't know, they seem to have mismanaged what they'd created. I mean, is that kind of split between types of business leadership, something that, that economists research between the entrepreneurship to start something like this and then the kind of skill you need to run it. And, and maybe there's a, a Stones connection here because in my research, it turns out that Mick Jagger, turns out he was a student of business at the London School of Economics in the early 60s when Hayek was there as well. So I don't know. Uh, is there maybe something there about Jagger's uh, uh, management of the, of the Stones? I mean, Jagger may well have been interested in business, but the subjects he actually studied in the, the one year that he completed at the LSE, I think, were, and I, I know this, economics, British government, political history, English legal institutions, and, wait for it, economic history. And ah. he got a C in all of them. Um, <laughs> but this really isn't a, a question of personalities, right? It's structural. It's the way the, the money works and the legal structures of copyright work. In the, in the performing arts businesses, right? So there are four players in this story, generally speaking, in the, in the history of the music business. So there's record companies, there's the music publishers who generally hold the copyright, and then there is the talent who are the songwriters and the musicians, right? And songwriters and musicians can be the same as they were for much of the Beatles and Rolling Stones production. But in a hit factory like Motown or Nashville or on Broadway, they're distinct, right? So you have the people who write the songs and then the people who perform them. And the question really is then who's got the bargaining power in this four-way relationship? And first of all, it was in fact with the publishers. So in the days before recorded music, it was the people, the songwriters would write for the publishers and the publishers would then own literally the sheet music that could be distributed. Then it was the record firms and they came to dominate. And so then the question was, how could you get bargaining power versus the record firms? And so songwriters and managers began to set up their own businesses and then applying for copyright in their own right. And artists can do that as well, 
And Lennon and McCartney later in their careers, in their solo careers, became their own copywriting entities. Hmm. But in the 60s, when they were starting out, when they were nobody, right? And, and you know, their early, their early records don't even sell very well. In those early deals with EMI, the business vehicle they worked for was an entity called Northern Songs, which was set up by Brian Epstein, their famous, their famous manager, and Dick James, who was the, the publisher of the music. And the, my, the Beatles themselves had a minority stake in the, in the business, but it's that business that Jackson ended up snapping up in the 80s. This doesn't mean, though, that the Beatles don't get paid, right? So as part of their relationship with Northern Songs, they got paid per record sold or per performance and so on. Mm. What they didn't do was control publishing decisions. So this is not a case of a jobbing artist in Motown or somewhere like that who was basically paid cents for ah. a huge hit. They made profit. I mean, Lennon was worth $500 million when he was killed. And as we started by saying, McCartney's net worth is $1.2 billion. So they're in the absolute Super League of performing talent. So McCartney's up there with Michael Jordan, with Tiger Woods, with Bot, you know. So this is, this is about as much money as you can really conceivably earn over a lifetime of individual performance of various types. And it puts you in the same league, interestingly, as the managerial super elite in banking. So McCartney's net worth is quite like that of Larry Fink at BlackRock or Lloyd Blankstein at Goldman Sachs. Jamie Dimon is now a little bit ahead, but he's sub $2 billion, so Jamie Dimon's probably worth 1.8. So they're not multi-billionaires, but in this sort of single-digit billion range. And that's really as much as you can probably earn in any walk of life just by selling your talent. To get mm. into the $10 billion league, the, what we think of now as really huge wealth, you need either to have inherited it, you need to have founded a giant company like Bezos, or you need to be involved in really heavily leveraged finance. So real estate or like Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone, not BlackRock, at Blackstone, which is a private equity outfit. And he's worth about $40 billion. But, in, you know, that's the kind of league that the McCartney and co ended up playing in. That $500 million to $1.2, $1.3 billion, that's sort of the maximum that anyone's ever able to earn by selling their talent. Wow. Okay. So correction taken there. Sounds like they did all right. Um, they made out just fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so one final question, Adam, one thing that the Beatles and the Stones obviously had in common is that they're both from Britain, um, as were, I guess, many other legendary rock acts from around the same time. Uh, I mean, do you think there are any deeper historical economic reasons that Britain specifically was such an incubator of, of pop music? Yeah, you know, you can't avoid this question as a Brit. Like, why is it that my country is associated with pop music the way it is? I've been thinking about it. The most obvious answer is that it's something to do with the English language, right? So other cultures have got great popular music, like, like France, for instance, but it just doesn't cross over into the global mainstream and the American mainstream to the same degree. Then there's something about British popular culture, in fact, right? So Britain urbanizes early. So folk music in Britain transitions quickly from the sort of peasant folk origins to an urban setting. So working class culture in Britain has a strong tradition of popular music making, music hall, pub music. Pianos were very popular items of consumption by the early 20th century. So if you think about the kind of households the Beatles would have been growing up in, they wouldn't have had much recorded music, maybe radios or record players until after World War II, but certainly music would have been everywhere. And then you have 
an important element in a lot of the British pop bands that are well known is the influence of art schools, so publicly funded art schools. So you John Lennon in the Bootles, Keith Richards, Brian Ferry, Mark Boland, David Bowie, uh, The Clash, um, somewhat to my surprise. Um, and then in the more recent generation, Blur and Pulp were all bands which came out of various parts of the British art school scene. And so it's that kind of crossover between the club scene and, um, you know, more highfalutin arts that's quite important and kind of kind of unique. But then I think by far and away the most important element thinking about this and specifically thinking about the Beatles and the Stones is the way in which Britain serves as a weird kind of conveyor belt for black musical culture into the commercial mainstream and back into the United States. So blues, R&B, reggae, jazz, as an indirect way for Americans to reappropriate America's own black music. So, I mean, the Rolling Stones are literally named after a Muddy Waters track. Um, Seeing Howling Wolf on tour in Britain in 62 was what consolidated that band. Um, It's a kind of way in which the British invasion, in other words, is a way in which America learned to love the music of black America, perhaps one should say the white America learned to love the music of black America just performed by English people. So the Brits were risque, but at least they were white. Okay, so wow, to clarify, the theory here is that that Britain is a kind of site of laundering uh, black culture back into into the US. whitewashing. Yeah, uh, kind of, exactly. Okay, well, that's, that's a whole other way of listening to the Beatles and the Stones. Maybe keep that in mind next time I fire them up on Spotify. We will leave it there for this week. That was another episode of Ones and Twos. My thanks, as always, to uh, my co-host, Adam Twos. And listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can also tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name. That's T-O-O-Z-E. Ones and Twos is written by me, Cameron Abadi, and Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rostrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. And the executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way.
These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.